Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Discovery Edition, and I'm your host, Michael Flores. And next to me at the Science Console is David. Hello, David. How's it going, Captain? Good. Very respectful. Thank you for calling <laughs> hey, me we, Captain. I appreciate that. We, we have to keep everything calm and collective here on Discovery. Can we hold on to each other and scream? Yeah, I was about to say, the, only, to, the only thing we can do is scream. Yeah, can we do that? Can we hold on to each other and let it all out? <laughs> Let's just let it all out. Let, let those emotions flow. But, uh, was that cringeworthy to you when seeing those two do that? You know what, dude? At first, it I was like, oh, I felt I don't know why I felt I felt uncomfortable <laughs> just a bit. But yeah. then I actually really liked it because of what it meant for the two of them. I'm okay with corn because it was corny. It was, but that doesn't mean it was bad. There are certain aspects that work that are sometimes corny, and I think that is one of them. And we'll get into it a little bit later towards the end of the show. Cause I want to connect it to other thoughts pertaining to this season of discovery, but that's a good question, Dave, because <laughs> I, I was wondering how you felt about that as well. Well, the funny part is I know it's an actual real therapy too. <laughs> the whole screaming therapy thing. I'm into death it's, therapy. You know? it, it's, it is basically like a true therapy and, but in practice, it is a little cringeworthy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to want to scream on someone, and I definitely don't want someone screaming in my direction. Exactly. All that spit flying at you. Come on. <laughs> I'm a germphobe. No, thank you. Well, what happens if it's, you know, someone like Seven of Nine doing that? Oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> but that's, yeah, open that mouth real wide and scream at me. <laughs> scream at me. It's inappropriate, David. Why do you got to bring things up like that? <laughs> we're, we're a progressive show, and you just take us back a couple steps every week. Well, I'm trying to actually make sure that, you know, hey, uh, there's other ways of looking at it to make everyone comfortable. That's true. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be talking about episode 12 of Star Trek Discovery, season four, titled Species 10C. Now, if you're a new listener, we cover a wide variety of Star Trek content, and you can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. All you have to do is just search from the holodeck and it will pop up on your feeds. Our preferred place to catch our show is iTunes and Spotify because those are the two platforms that allow you to leave reviews as well as rate, and the algorithms allows other viewers to find our show, the more, the more people that rate and review. So please do so. All right, David, so this episode was directed by Adatonde Asusumnami and written by Kyle Jarrow. Now, I will say this is another solid episode. This one actually being the penultimate episode of the season. Yes. I was about to say we can finally say that this is the penultimate episode. Yeah, I had to double check just to make sure because two mistakes in a row would just make us lose all credibility. I, I think so, yeah. <laughs> like these guys don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Every single week, this is the penultimate episode. Do they even know what that word means? Nope, absolutely nope, not. Absolutely not. All right, so this season continues to prove its value and contribution to the Star Trek legacy. That's right, David. I am going there. With moments dedicated to notions of logic, teamwork, the continued theme of cultural context is factoring into several key aspects of the season as well. But also, the writers are framing moments with a heavy dosage of Shakespearean attitude. Yeah, I mean, especially in this one... Discovery, I think, has finally found its voice, its own voice, its own personality that will set that helps it separate itself from the other shows. You know, like every single Star Trek series has its own feeling, its own vibe. And I think, like, particularly with this episode, I think 
they've hit their peak when it comes to this is what a discovery series should feel like. Well, hopefully not their peak, but definitely uh, this is them firing on all cylinders. Firing on all cylinders, yeah. you know, like because like the one thing me and you have always gone back and forth about every single season of Discovery is Discovery has to find its voice. Yeah, and I want to say it took them this long to do so only because of the exchange of creative leadership that kept going on in there that, during the opening, what, two and a half seasons? Yeah, and also you, you do have to throw in the pandemic into this because it slowed down production so much. Yeah, but the show finally did, I would agree, definitely found its voice. I want to say in years, years down the road and we reflect on, on Star Trek Discovery as a Trek series, this season will no doubt be the season that many fans look to and say, this is the moment the show found itself. This is the, sh this is the season where the show finds its identity as its own version of Star Trek rather than trying to be something else or try to be provocative or edgy, which is what I felt like they were trying really hard to be during the first season. I enjoyed what they were doing, but there were moments that were just so gruesome and gory for no reason. Yeah. During the first season. And it was them trying to find their identity as a more mature take on Trek. And it didn't quite work with how they were doing it. But now they realize, hey, we don't need to be edgy. We just need to fucking write the hell out of an episode. Exactly. And I think that that, that in the first season, what really hurt it was you were going from an original idea by Brian Fuller. And then, yeah. and then Fuller left mm -hmm. because by all standards, when we look back at Brian Fuller's original concept of discovery, it is nothing like what the past three seasons are. No, it's supposed to be an anthology. It was supposed to be an anthology and it was supposed to be kind of like jumping around the Star Trek universe. Right. Instead, when Kurtzman came in, he decided, no, we're going to go with a more, and this is not meant to be a bad term, but formulaic Star Trek series. We're going to have our centralized crew, our centralized ship. Mm -hmm. We're not going to jump around. We're not going to deal with, you know, jumping into the mirror universe and stuff like that. You know, what's funny though now is Kurtzman recently announced that he is <laughs> as if none of us remember he's more, yeah, I'm thinking of possibly doing an anthology series soon. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, wait a second, bro. So you're stealing the very idea that got Brian Fuller fired. Brian Fuller fired, yeah. It was creative differences because he wanted an anthology series. He wanted every season to be a different time in Star Trek, chronologically, I should say, and a different crew, different stories, because it was something unique. And then from those seasons, they could spin off certain shows that worked really well with audiences, which I think that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. You're essentially forming a, a testing model where it's like, Oh, third season was really beloved. Let's spin this off. It's been into it its own show. And if you think about it, technically, technically Kurtzman already stole that idea with short mm -hmm. tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he just downscaled the idea. So it, it'd be interesting, like, just to be a fly on the wall in, like, an interview with Brian Fuller just to see what his exact ideas were and then compare it to what Kurtzman pulled off. Yeah. And it'll be – I wouldn't be surprised if, like, Kurtzman took a lot of, like, Fuller's ideas but uh, tooled it to what he felt Paramount was capable of doing. Yeah. Yeah, so ultimately, Dave, bringing it back to, I guess, the, the legacy of Star Trek and how Discovery is really proving itself this season. The Shakespearean element is something that's really coming through this season. And sometimes you could say, oh, the melodrama. I'm like, well, is that melodrama or is that Shakespearean? Shakespearean. I want to say the lines blur just a bit. And I want to say an episode like this, it's veering more towards the Shakespearean, especially when you look at the moments of tragic betrayal you know, dealing with Burnham and Book and then Tarka and Book. And I have a feeling that this aspect will be amplified in a way that will change the series moving forward. Meaning, I'm talking character deaths, Dave. In order for a season like this and the, the way it's going, 
for it to have a lasting impact and not simply end on a high note like last season. Something has to happen this season. It cannot just end, yay, we solved the problem, let's sail away. Is that really the ending we want two seasons in a row? It would feel a little weird, correct? It or am would. I wrong at saying I, this? I, honestly, the way the, the the episode left off, yeah. It would be a little strange to all of a sudden, Discovery wins the day, move on. Like when you have a serial, you can't always end on a positive note because you have to fuel the momentum for the next season based on those emotions and motivations that you can pull over. Now you can wrap up the immediate threat, but there needs to be some lasting effect. Yes. And that's the thing is like the lasting effect because like you're dealing with also honestly, some of the most deepest character character studies discovery has tackled throughout its four seasons. I mean, the whole relation, the whole character development of book has been like, a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. You started off with a man who is hell bent on revenge. He wants revenge to suddenly someone who only he wants to take that negativity, turn it into a positive and basically save the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he wants to trust this, this very suspect person, but because he trusted the suspect person or Tarka, he was able to actually develop a friendship with him mm-hmm. that I actually did genuinely feel Tarka that that moment when Tarka looked at book and said, you, there's only two people in this world that I've called my, my friend mm-hmm. and you were one of them. And I truly believe Tarka actually did. Yeah. It, it was true with that. Yeah, yeah. It was cool. when Reno basically said, well, <laughs> this is a, this is an interesting way of showing it. <laughs> and and I, I chuckled at that, but in actuality, when you take a step back, the develop of the relationship between book and Tarka is actually really Shakespearean. Yeah, it really is. And also it's a page taken from, unfortunately a page taken from reality. There's a lot of members of science. And we like to say that these, we have this romanticized idea lately. And I, when I say lately, maybe like the last two decades or so that scientists are here to save us and they make (laughs) wonderful inventions for us to live and they're going to save the whales and the world. And sure, there are scientists. They're absolutely motivated by those types of things. To better the world. But then there are scientists who are simply like the guy that helped start NASA. I forgot his name now. Who doesn't care about anything else. They're disconnected from society and they're obsessed with the motivations of science and what it can do for the betterment of humanity as a whole. And by thinking of humanity as a whole, and in this case, let's bring it to discovery. When you look at humanity as a whole and not as individuals, you tend to, it tends to be easier to make excuses for certain things you may do, like science possibly hurting some. Yeah. Our experiments are only going to hurt about a thousand people, but in the end, it's going to save people. There are scientists that do have that disconnect from humanity. And Tarka is a bit like that. That's why when he said there's only been two people in my entire life that I considered friends, that was the driving point for me. I was like, well, he is a lot like scientists of the past, specifically yes. Nazi Germany. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel like the repercussions are going to be lasting uh, Book will have to face the fact that he made a deal with the devil. And despite Reno mentioning that Book is emotionally compromised, there's got to be the co- there's got to be a cost to what he has done. Ignorance does not justify the actions that lead to the potential genocide of 10C and Earth. Yes. And I don't think a thing like this could be swept under the rug. No. Too much has happened now for everything to go back to being normal. Book going back to Discovery. They kidnap Jet Reno. They are latched on to the bottom of Discovery cloaked. They sabotage Discovery. They sabotage the first contact. They're sending a toxic void to Earth that's going to destroy the entire planet. Even if Book says, hey, I didn't, I wasn't a part of this, it, it doesn't matter. He was a part of it. He may not have been involved in the devious planning of it, but he had a major part to play. And Burnham and everyone has been pleading with him not to do this. And that's why I'm saying from a writing standpoint, and when you view this through uh, the Shakespearean lens, 
it's going to end badly for him. And I've been saying this all season, it seems like, but it's, it's even worse than just ending badly. I think he's going to pay the ultimate cost. Sabotage and the potential killing of a species during a first contact negotiation. I mean, though book isn't necessarily a Federation citizen, presumably within the logic of the series, he's still going to be held responsible. Yeah. And even if let's say he's not held responsible, uh, like being thrown in the brig, literally he's going to be held responsible. There has to be repercussions for the viewer, which means a death. He's got to die. He's a- my, I think he's going to die. He's going to probably sacrifice himself to make up for his mistake and stop Tarka. That's he's, what I see happening. He's either got to die or you, this is just thinking outside of the series. You remove book from discovery. He, he can never return to discovery. He cannot return to Burnham. He cannot return to the crew of the discovery because so either death or remove him from the show right? or exile. Yeah, yeah. You have to exile him. And it, it did make me think honestly with how Star Trek is and how they're very open into branching out and finding spinoff series, just unloading any Star Trek content that they can. Mm-hmm. I could see them actually making a series around book, you know, this lone guy who basically is in the Star Trek universe by himself. He's isolated. I agree. Cause he's an interesting character and yeah. it would be a shame. He has no home, no home planet to call. All he can do now is just try to stay alive in a, in a universe that vilifies him. Yeah. There's not a, there's not a lot left that they can do with him. I feel like after the season, other than what, what you're saying. So, but that's why I'm saying this leads to me thinking that he's probably going to die or something's going to happen to where he just cannot be even around the discovery ship. Maybe Burnham allows him to escape, you know, when he's going to be held responsible by the Federation. But yeah, from a sheer literary sense, this could conceivably be a way for the writers to pave a path for, for, for redemption for the character because as of now, he's guilty of being naive and allowing his emotions to blind him from the facts. Yeah, and I honestly think if there is a character to die next episode, it's Tarka. Uh, I think the character is too far gone at this point because his motivations at first were were thought to be admirable. You know, like the fact that he was he's obsessed with finding the perfect world. And finding the energy source to make that perfect world. But essentially in this episode, you you come out and you basically show the ultimate insanity of Tarka, which is he's so far gone at this point that mm-hmm. he, he's willing to sacrifice everybody, everybody, solely to actually get this energy source. Now, I, I have to say, now I... I don't think it's going to end in death for Tarka because death for a character like that would be too easy. Okay. Meaning a character from a literary standpoint and also just based on Shakespeare, a character like book would die in order to achieve redemption and to pay for his sins. He kind of fits into that archetype because he's not an evil person, he's not a bad person. He's just guilty of ignorance and naive and naivete. Naivete, yeah. Parka knew everything he was doing and death is too easy for him. And I don't see him sacrificing himself to save earth or discovery. No, no, no. no. So what I think is going to happen to him because we have to close the we have to have closure to his story with his friend that he's trying to rescue. You don't introduce a character like that and give us an entire episode just simply for motivation unless we're going to go back to this character in some way. And I have a feeling that he's going to end up in some way getting to his universe or at least seeing a glimpse of the universe. And either A, he can't reach it. It's just out of, it's just out of reach, which would be an amazing way to punish him. He's so close to achieving his goal and he doesn't. Or the universe that he's trying to reach doesn't exist. Yes. And it's actually the opposite of pure peace. And it's a, a fucking living hell. It's, it's like a, a, a wasteland. Yes. That would be the way to 
it would, that would be the way for Tarka to get his comeuppance, in my opinion. It'd be very, and that would be very Shakespearean. That would Absolutely. Be exactly yeah. how they're writing it. And do you, honestly, do you see what I'm saying though about the two differences yeah, in those characters? I do. I do. It's it's definitely a a, a way of viewing those characters. It's just and that's what the amazing thing with Discovery this far. I think out of all the past seasons me and you have covered, we haven't gotten that that in depth, especially with the penultimate episode and the finale as much as this particular episode because there's so much going on in this episode. They can still go so many different directions. And, you know, throughout this season, I kept saying they have to stick the landing. They got to stick this landing. So far, I'm willing to say they're sticking the landing because they're having me, they're having us as the audience guessing what is going to happen in the end. Right. And also they're closing out things as we get closer to the end, which yes. I, they have not done that before. That's why we thought two episodes ago was the penultimate <laughs> episode because they're already closing things out, which is not something discovery has made a habit of doing is closing out things early on so that they can focus on a finale that feels completely fleshed out and fully thought out, I should say as well. So who knows what's going to happen, but I will say, and then we're going to move on from the book situation. One reason why I think that book might possibly die is because of the conversation he had with Jet Reno about how he was given his name and how it's passed down or handed down in a type of mentor slash apprentice dynamic. That was a story that was not needed when you think about it. But why do we need a story that way? And I have a feeling that that was the last bit of development on his story. And it gives it closure and it's his way of saying bye to Burnham because this is what's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to get out on, I'm going to go out on the limb here and say this. Okay. He is going to bestow Booker Cleveland, the name and his title and his legacy on Burnham since Burnham worked with him and she was his apprentice and then he's going to die. That's what I think is going to happen, dude. Because why do you bring up a story like that unless it's going to come into play? Mm, you get what I'm saying? No, I do. I, I do. have a feeling that he's going to tell Burnham something. So he's going to allude to something about you are now going to be the person that carries on this name. And listen, we already know Burnham has used. She has used. The, yeah. Booker's teaching. Look at the casino episode. She has learned a lot about the layout of this new time because of book. So she and she spent what a year working with him, working with him. So it feels like that could be the direction they're going. You know what? You bring up a valid point because like this whole time I've been looking at it as the relationship between book and Burnham has been kind of like a romantic interest. However, you could easily turn it and basically make it like, well, remember book was the one who, who helped Burnham get adjusted to this new time yeah. This new time period, they spent like two years and he's teaching her all these things. So in essence, Book is Burnham's mentor. Yeah. And I love Book. I think he's a great character, Dave, but he's not really the type of character that can that can continue to be the focus of the show. And this season is built around him in it a is. lot of ways. In a lot of ways. But yeah. that can't continue. We have actual Starfleet characters that we should spend more time with because this is a Star Trek show. That's why it's going to be interesting because I'm I'm curious to see, is Book going to make the decision or is it going to come down to Burnham? Because this whole time, this whole season has been a, a kind of... It, it this whole season has been used to set Burnham up to be that main character, to be the leader, to be the captain. And 
especially the way it's left off, it really felt like it's going to come down to Burnham making that choice. Yeah, very well could be. So there is a said, lot. Dude, there's a lot going on. And David, we haven't had conversations like this with Discovery since I want to say the first season, maybe the second season. Second, second season. season. Second yeah. season because like, honestly, the this gives me the vibes of how second season with Burnham dealing with Spock. That right. whole relationship yeah. was beautiful because yeah. like, but that was different than like watching Burnham with book. Her and Spock was a brother and sister trying to come together and basically come to an understanding with each other as a family unit. Right. Book and Burnham are this season have been teetering between, you know, this romantic interest to now that you've actually brought it up a very mentor type of student relationship where it's kind of like, he he's using she's using tactics that he he used and there's things that he taught her that are coming now into play and when you put everything together it's kind of like it is it is one of the more dynamic relationships that we've seen burnham put in since spock yeah it is, but that's why, see, I, I feel like Burnham's character works better when you pair her up with this type of, I, I guess you can say this, this type of dynamic. Well, that's know? why I thought the, the, uh, the whole relationship between her and uh, Relac is now turning into what she. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good relationship. Too. What, what she's had with book. Yeah. And now, you know. If the writing is on the wall, like what you said, and book book is going to be taken out of the equation, Relac is now going to be kind of like that person that Burnham bounces off of. Yeah, it's almost like book's not really needed anymore. That's another thing. And something that good writers do in shows is once a character's not needed. They take them out. And they remove them. So, I, and not to say I want that to happen because I really like his character, but Sometimes you got to kill your darlings. Isn't that the saying? <laughs> kill, you got to kill your creations. Yeah. yeah. And Book and Burnham, that sounds like a, a like an 80s or like 70s cop show, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Book and, Burnham. Book and Burnham. Book and Burnham. This summer. Let's see if it works. Oh, yeah, it works. Yeah. Yeah. Book and Burnham. Book and Burnham. Coming to the theater near you. Look out. Phaser's set to sex. Phaser's set to sexy. Book and Burnham <laughs> are coming at you. <laughs> Look out, bad guys. Book and Burnham are coming. So bad. So bad. It does sound like a, a cop show, though. It really does. It does. Okay, so now the highlight for me, Dave, in this episode was the well-thought-out and unique approach to first contact. Okay, are we getting into this? Because there's a lot, dude. It was so there's good, a lot. David. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. The communication process and the linguistic investigation leading up to the breaking of the, the communication barrier yes. was very neat. And how they use science, math, and the philosophy of, of uh, sentience to overcome the language issues. Now... I'm going to, I'm going to bring this up because this was the first, the, this right here was what the, made this particular episode so special for me is this is the moment when I basically went, you know, Discovery is probably the most intellectual Star Trek series I've ever watched because you get to this point and I'm going to be honest. You know, me and you have talked about it off the air, how mass audiences look at Discovery and they kind of poo-poo it. And a lot of Star Trek fans poo-poo it. But, like, Discovery is one of those shows that I think a lot of people are put off because they're not intelligent enough to oh, understand what's going no, on. No, I don't think that at all. Jesus. Because, because, dude, dude, I love Bringing up the whole math as language. Uh, yes, David. Listen, I agree with you. Everything you said up to the insulting of people. <laughs> it's not I, insulting. Listen, it's just honest. <laughs> there are people that have different tastes and there are some people who don't want to overthink when they watch something. Typically, those aren't Star Trek viewers. Most Star Trek viewers tend to be 
a little higher on the IQ scale for the most part, at least when you compare them side by side, the average TV audience. But I will agree with you, Dave, that the Star Trek, that Star Trek Discovery is without a doubt, especially after this season, one of the more intellectual Star Trek shows, without a doubt. They don't pull punches. Uh, they really know how to make some of that fringe and pseudoscience really make, make sense. Yes. Um, and if you look things up, some, I'm not a scientist, so there are things that I need to look up. But when it comes to the philosophy angle, I usually can pick up on that right away oh, yeah. and any issues pertaining to the writing. But I will say, Dave, that everything they, they use, the words and the, the science lingo, all of it is steeped in some type of real, real science. Real science. Which is what Star Trek has always been built on for the most part. But the way Discovery does it, this is a perfect example of what, of the point you're trying to make, Dave. This entire sequence with the first con during the first contact with 10C was a, a perfect example of how intelligently written this show can be at times. And interestingly, the, the species, this is what we learned through this entire process. Not only was it smart, but also it was a great way to intelligently flesh out this species that is very different than anything we've seen exactly so interestingly the species uses light patterns as their language yes and the pheromones to convey emotional inflection and context and this is where it gets intriguing because the writers express an interesting and philosophical idea on sentience this aspect of the narrative begins when the crew of discovery realizes that they are being tested by species 10 C because 10 C they're unsure that they're dealing with sentient beings, sentient being. Yeah. When this happened, the Federation president had said they should realize we are because we came here in a starship and we warped here. And Dr. Hira says that compared to 10 C their technology is so primitive that they 10 C achieve uh, have achieved effectively or essentially level two on the Kardashev, Kardashev, Kardashev scale, which to them is like comparing a human to, to a, a monkey, to with, a a monkey rock. with a rock. And I, I, I was so happy to hear them use this type of lingo because I this have is heard honest, of the Kardashev scale. Yeah, this is this is actual science. And the 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 sad part for me is I can see people like looking at this, go uh, thinking that, you know, oh they're just flashing lights and everything else, and why don't they just tell the uh, tell the aliens, you know, they're too intelligent. They're too to intelligent directly. And, How awesome is that? And and here's the thing, for me, I was like. I, there's going to be some audiences basically going, they're not smarter than humans. <laughs> oh, come on. We're not that smart. Exactly. I mean, even to our own standards, we're not smart. If you look at what the Kardashian scale is, which the reason why I'm familiar with this is because I'm a space nerd. I love NASA. I yes. love all of that stuff. And basically, in a nutshell here, I'll briefly explain what the Kardashian scale is. In 1964, a Soviet astronomer, Nikolai Kardashev, designed a scale that classifies global civilization on the basis of their level of development. Development. The scale is a method of measuring a civilization's level of technological advancement based on the amount of energy it is able to use. The more energy a civilization has, the more technology it can create, and the more new technologies are created. Now, interestingly, Dave, this is very much fact, meaning the reason why we can't build certain vessels, you know, people wonder why we don't have giant spaceships yet. It's because we don't have the resources nor the energy Gee. to even power these larger vessels. Precisely. So yes. we as a civilization, according to the Karshev scale, we haven't even reached the first level of the scale. Currently, human civilization is at zero level. Zero level. Yeah. Because there, and, and to give people an idea of this, there's three overall level or four, if you count zero, 
four levels of the Kardashev scale. There's zero, type one, type two, type three, right? What's type one? Type one is is what we're close to, that we're, we're near actually space travel, right? Like true sp- space true travel? True space travel. Type two is basically we've successfully gone into space and we can actually spread out and, and, uh, so I have the, the, the direct definitions. Yeah. Know, if you want me to read them rather than paraphrasing. Yeah. Because like, that's easier. I'm going off my memory because I love this stuff, dude, because it really puts it into scale. How undeveloped, how undeveloped and yeah. how insignificant we, we are. are. So insignificant. Like we are nothing. <laughs> we really are. So tight. Okay. So in order for us to reach, Level one. Yes. Currently, we are residents of the zero level. And what we need to do in order to reach the first level is we need to produce more energy, obviously. And according to data on global energy consumption, we have passed only 0.16%. So, David, we're not close to level one. Yeah. So, type one. Humans will learn to extract energy from everything on the planet. Currently, the civilization of type one is usually defined as one that can harness all the energy that falls on the planet from its parent star, which obviously we're unable to do. No, we're we're way not even close to that. Uh, Type two, uh, humans will be able to subdue the energy of the sun and the entire solar system, which not even... Not even close. Not even close. And people out there automatically were saying, well, what about solar power? No, we're talking, you have to harness the power of the sun physically. By way of a Dyson sphere. By a Dyson sphere. Yes. No way. Level three, (laughs) we have to subdue the entire Milky Way galaxy. All the planets (laughs) and stars that make up our galaxy will be contained in Dyson spheres Humans will extract and harness all energy in our galaxy. You know what? Technically, unknown species 10C is almost type three because didn't, almost didn't three. they have, they were definitely between two and three because they're, they're between two and three because they were able to actually master a Dyson sphere and they have a solar system. Yes. And they're not just mastering the sun. They're mastering a solar system because I believe it was Jet Reno that said there is Maybe it wasn't Jet Reno. Was it? I don't remember. I think it was, was Stamets. Okay. Was it Stamets? There was like, what, three planets and a sun in there? Yeah. It was an entire solar system. It was a solar system. So I would say they're somewhere between two and three. three. Yeah. So that that right there shows just how emotionally compromised Tarka is because Tarka is very aware of the level system, I'm sure. And the fact that he thinks he can destroy this infrastructure and get away with it is completely ludicrous. Oh yeah. It's, it's a very primitive way of thinking. Yes. And that's, that's the thing that I like that they put, they, they, they poised out there with this episode is the fact that one of the biggest, one of the biggest philosophy questions, why humanity is held back so far is because of their emotional state. Mm -hmm. They cannot, Phantom. We have to master our emotions. We have to master master our emotions. And Tarka is proving that. He's proving that basically you, you we as a species, you know, yes, Tarka's a, a different species of humanoid, but he's still a humanoid species from our galaxy that he cannot control his emotions, meaning he's just to, to 10C, Tarka's a monkey. And that's an animal that needs to be put down. Do you think but monkeys need to be put down or Tarka as a monkey? Well, think about it. Because I mean, putting what do we monkeys, do? I can't condone that. Well, that's, what do we do? Rude. What do we do with animals? You know, this is, and this is, you know, just the brutal honesty. What do we do with animals that are get out of line, Mike? What do we do with them? I don't include me in that. <laughs> I, let nature, I let nature take its course. You might let nature take its course, but majority of the time we put said animal down. So mm-hmm. if you look at 10C, oh, yeah. this primitive but being also, is... Also, though, I do agree with you, and it depends really on on how fully evolved these individuals are as well. Are they evolved as well? Like, meaning, are they, are they a truly evolved species in the sense that they have risen above 
such violence yeah. or are they just evolved in the way of technology? Exactly. If they are both, then I have a feeling that they would probably have a certain level of, of rational thought that yes. would understand that they're afraid and that a certain group or offshoot of the main organization that they're confronted with the Federation has done something that, that possibly the others have not yeah. co-signed. And, and, the, and they kind of, they kind of proved that when they basically, they put out the equation out there or that, that mathematical equation that showed that humanoids were actually showing fear about, you know, right. The, the DMA. Yeah. So what had happened? 10 C reacted and basically rep uh, reacted with an equation that showed a Paul guilt saying, Oh, you know, sorry, our bad. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we just should be very thankful that I was not a part of this crew. Because if I had to figure out four plus five, I'd be like, I'd be like, wow, wow. Can I use my fingers, burn them real fast? Let's see. One, two, three, four. Okay. Add it's, five to four. Usually when you're doing math of this magnitude, it's easier to start with all 10 fingers, but, including the thumbs. But dude, that's why you just take one away. Right? Yes. And then that's nine. So you take five and four and you have nine, nine. just to verify and check your work. <laughs> that's why, that's why I was, uh, that doctor dude, that, that, that character, he's becoming my favorite person because he's so brutally oh, honest. He's me, dude. He's like, let's just send them four plus five. And everyone looks at him funny and he's like, going, well, that's the easiest freaking thing. All of us can understand. <laughs> and I'm like, going, four plus five. it's, it's not, he's not lying. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, that's probably the rudimentary intelligence. If I was in charge in this fictional world, we would be at war right now. <laughs> <laughs> we would be at war. <laughs> but yeah, I will say that's another really strong element of the episode was the, the idea of what language based on math. Oh my God, it, dude, that was so awesome. Which is interesting because so, okay. So the language of 10 C is so complex that they didn't even bother to teach it to the humans because they knew they couldn't comprehend it. Yeah. So they're using what, what is called a, what's it called? A bridge language. Is bridge that what language. they called it? Yep. And essentially the bridge language is based solely on math, which is hilarious. What because do they call it? Linkos? Linkos. Yeah. And this is an actual real thing. It's a real belief that if we were to actually meet alien species, the Linkos theory is that, we wouldn't communicate them with, you know, a typical word language like what me, what we're all doing right now. Mm -hmm. We would communicate with math because math is the building blocks of all life. Every living species should be able to understand mathematics because it's the quote unquote universal truth. Right. Now, just to rebuttal that theory now in the world of star trek it works right it works because in the world of star trek math is that universal uh communication right well, because Element science that people use science will save the day that's the thing right science so, has to save the day so math being used is it is interesting however back in you know the, the early days of western philosophies plato and aristotle they i want to say they posed questions originally that other philosophers have picked up on in more recent times that possibly math isn't a universal language because they have posed the questions it's part of the epistemology aspect or branch of philosophy is mathematics invented or discovered? Did yes. we create it to help us understand <laughs> things or did we actually discover math? It's you're bringing it even further into, into the realm of like, if I was the show, if I was the showrunner, that's what I would bring up. But here's the thing though. Then you just, you just added more problems to the story because like, I know. then you would have to actually say, <laughs> well, if they don't understand math and math is like basically our universal language. I've always loved that notion that basically math is the ultimate answer to the, everything in the universe. You know, it is, you know, the whole joke outside of Star Trek, you know, the answer to life is 42. Mm -hmm. That's a mathematical equation. It's also and, bullshit. And it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but like 
when you when you actually sit down and think of it as a logical person, if I were to go out into space and meet a alien species, you know, most likely are you going to try to are you going to try to put together the very difficult equation of five plus four exactly. Because, like, how, what are you going to do? Most likely, they're not going to look like me and you. They're not going to look humanoid. They might be. That's why I love the fact that 10C, we don't really see their form. Do they, it's a gaseous form. Is it form. like, it looked like a it looked like a brain with, like, tentacles, right? Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. That because was really like, cool. And, and they, they did it very subtly so that basically, I think that's the, the best way they, they can... They can do it budget wise, budget wise. And yeah. also when you it th- works. when you think about it, it's better to leave it subtly because if they were to try to answer, this is a species that's higher in plane of intelligence than us. Mm-hmm. A lot of people might think that that's hokey, especially when you all of a sudden, you know, is it show no? it. And all of a sudden, Oh look, it's a brain with like waving tentacles and stuff like that. That's very original series. Yes. Yeah, it is. I see your point. Yeah. And like, it's better to leave it very subtle because then the audience can use their own imagination. What do you think an, an actual alien species would actually look well, like? Well, and they showed them slightly in the holographic display. They showed an outline of them. Yes. So I'm like, that's a good way to get our brains kind of going in the right direction. And then we can use our imagination for the rest. And I'm okay with that. I think that does work actually. Sometimes, sometimes less is better. And I think in a, in a situation like this where you're dealing with the unknown, if you were to see the species, I feel like half the suspense would be taken away. Yeah. And and that's what is the beautiful thing about this whole thing of using math as a universal language is it adds to that tension and it adds into that mystery is like math can if math can answer everything. David, listen, you want math to be the universal language, but I'm going to raise you sex. sex <laughs> Dude, is do you the, think you can have the, sex with 10C? Listen, I don't think so. No, but they'll understand it. I'll be like, come here, Burnham. Let's have sexual fast on camera. And then we're going to beam this image over to them. They'll know what it is. I'll share my pheromones. They know what a good fucking is. <laughs> but see, they'd be confused though, because you know, you'd have anger, you'd have guilt, <laughs> you'd have ecstasy. You have all those emotions just firing off all at once. And they're going to be like, what the hell are they doing? Listen, there's no anger. It'd just be pure love for Burnham. But like, come here. Let's show them what it's all about. Universal lovemaking. <laughs> Universal lovemaking. All right. So get more from the holodeck content by pledging to our Patreon page. Uh, this year, we've got a wide variety of Trek content planned for Patreon subscribers, so you don't want to miss out. Pre-shows, exclusive podcast episodes. We have a discussion exclusively coming to Patreon that is based on the Picard audio drama that we'll be breaking down and reviewing as well as a few new comic books. So head over to patreon.com slash Rayman digital. The only way we can continue to do shows and as many shows that we're going to do this year for, from the star Trek side, we need those Patreon subscribers. So patreon.com slash Rayman digital. Okay, David, we got to close out, but overall the episode was very strong. As we have said many times, this is the most touchy feely of all the treks. Yeah. And at times it feels unnecessary. However, the moment between Burnham and Saru, (laughs) it was very powerful. And the way it was executed really did a great job expressing the intimacy of their friendship, their closeness, their closeness. Yeah. So I did like that. The imagery of Discovery, the mise-en-scene, the chosen camera movement, or the cinematography is never elusive or unmotivated. If you pay close attention, the visuals in the show always aid in the story in a more metaphorical metaphorical sense. Also, the attention to detail this season, specifically utilizing philosophy, mathematical theories, scientific rationale, all of it adds to its authenticity as a Star Trek series. Logic, Dave. If a problem stumps you, examine your assumptions. That line was spot on yes. Star Trek. That is spot on Star Trek. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to give this episode a 93%. Go ahead, Dave. Final thoughts and your score. My score on this one, uh, this is probably because I'm still a little hoping. Uh, I'm I'm wondering how they're going to land it. Mm. But 
my score for this episode is 89. Oh, you are son of a bitch. Well, because I'm like going, I think I'm, I'm really hesitant. Math, David, what about the math? The math worked. The math worked, Mike. But as what I said, also, also the problem, the problem that I also was, I alluded to in the very beginning is like, while Discovery has found its voice and I really fully believe that this is the episode that they truly found what Discovery is and what they're, what they're themes and what their tones are. Yeah. I also feel that basically I could see mass audiences, maybe some, some Star Trek fans. Don't say it again. I could (laughs) see them not liking this type of storytelling because it might be a little too much for them. But this is what they wanted though. Do you remember a lot of people complained about Picard first season like we did when you suddenly used just your imagination and you solve problems. Exactly. Now, now you're seeing something that basically is trying to explain something so unknown with actual true, true science. Mm -hmm. But I also can see people like turning around saying that doesn't make any sense to my poor feeble brain. Oh wow. (laughs) I think it goes, I don't think people, the people who are complaining about this, remember Mike, we're type zero. We're type zero. That is is fucking true. (laughs) We are type zero. I will not rebuttal you. I guess rebuttal the audience. And we, we, I think we say this almost every episode. The problem is that discovery struggled for that first season. Yes. And because of that, it left a stench in the room. And we, we're more objective when we watch shows. So we're willing to give shows a chance. And we allow them to hang themselves eventually. And then we're like, okay, you fucked up. Like, <laughs> you just <laughs> suck. But a lot of people aren't like that. A lot of people don't want to give a show a second chance if it's not good. And I feel like a lot of the people who are complaining, they're probably not even currently watching. In fact, I was talking to a listener, um, well, a former listener the other day, and they aren't even watching the episodes. They're reading recaps. Yes. And then listening to those people writing recaps complain. (laughs) And then they base their opinion on the complaints of someone writing a recap, not actually watching the show. And then you go to IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, and you see that they're actually review bombing the show still. Yeah. Like, guys, there's no reason to review bomb a show. When it's in its fourth season. Like, there's no reason to do that. You're not going to succeed in shutting down the show. The show is a success. It's making a lot of money. If you don't like the show, don't watch it. You don't need a review bomb. Yeah. All right, let's close out the show before I start getting really angry. (laughs) And I don't think five plus four will help. Will help you? No. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Head over to patreon.com slash patreon.com slash Digital and pledge. Thank you. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.